and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, summer hopes, summer blues and summer cues. What lies ahead for airlines this summer? And everyone wants a piece of spirit. Why the budget carrier isn't in demand, does this mean merger mania is back? My name's Graham Dunn, and joining me is airline business editor Lewis Harper. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yeah, good. And um, it's been a while since we've uh, we've been doing this. I was going to say, long time no see. I mean, um, in common with uh, the wider industry, I guess uh, the, uh, the, the 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 pandemic has uh, caused um, some you know changes for us, and um, we're we're really glad though that we're we're still here. Still, still here. Fly global, and we're um, you know, keen to get back to doing these regularly again. So the uh, the podcast hiatus is over, we hope. And um, it's interesting, of course, the timing now coming uh, almost two years since the pandemic hit. Uh, there's there's a degree of optimism. Yeah, well, I mean, one of many things we've probably learned during the the pandemic is um, you know not not to be too um, presumptuous about how things are going to go, in the, certainly in the short term, and we. We know there were a few false starts over the past two years. Certainly, there was a point going into 2021 where there was a feeling, you know, the vaccines were proven to work and there was a feeling that we were perhaps going to have something better than than it it actually turned out. But we're certainly at a a point now where I think that confidence is returning. We know that living in the UK, for example, that most COVID or all COVID restrictions are, are ended, even though cases are very high. And we'll touch on in a second, maybe on how that isn't um you know, an entirely uh, consequence-free uh, decision for the airline industry, but um, but yeah, yeah, that we're we're certainly, I think, touch wood, you know, and we we know well about the potential for variants and things, but we are looking ahead to something I think better in the summer, and we're already seeing going into Easter a level of demand that um, is quite pleasing, really, given what what everyone's been through, and and to some extent, this is this is probably the crunch period, isn't it? Because uh, the phrase that has be- We've heard more from you know any airline executive you listen to or interview uh, heard at any point over the past eighteen months, two years or so has spoken about pent up demand. Mm-hmm. That you know the uh, this this view that you know the demand is is out there that is unchanged. It's uh, you know regardless of, of of what happens, it's it's simply the ability to fly that has impacted demand. And this summer, you know that is going to be put to the test. It will be, and that's um, yeah for for a number of reasons. I think on the on the one hand, I guess we're we're looking at um, issues with cost of living, um, high inflation, high energy costs, which obviously also affect the, the businesses and and the airlines with uh, fuel costs. But yeah, on the one side, we've got this um, interesting, di- very unhelpful dynamic, of course, that looking ahead to what was supposed to be this really strong recovery, and it's it's not clear how that will affect things. So you've got. On the one hand, you've got that. On the other side, you've got um, the disruption we're seeing as airlines attempt to, and airports as well, attempt to ramp up operation. You know, the, the basic logistics of doing that is, is, a, is a big challenge at the moment. And again, being in the UK, it's kind of a often a story that excites the, the general media quite a lot when there's disruption for travel. And I think obviously... They've been starved of that kind of story for, for two years. So um, with, with the stuff going on at the moment, there's a there's a lot um, a lot in the press of it, some of the challenges. And of course, you know, especially within Europe, I think, and, and you know, I think we've seen it elsewhere as well. You know, the, the idea that, that at peak times of the air travel season that, yeah. <laughs> that there were delays and the airports were struggling uh, to keep up with demand. I mean, that was a... 
there's a massive story across Europe in the pre-pandemic summers. Uh, it's obviously a bit strange, you know, to run an industry a fraction of the summer. You know, getting on at the moment to being half the size or so, or, for, mm. or, or maybe more. Um, th- there's still that problem, but that is that issue of going from you know flat to flat demand in January and February to yeah. the summer where there is. There, you know, many airlines, especially on on specific markets, short haul European is one example. Mm. Transatlantic market, are you know, essentially have capacity at or above the levels they had it before. Yeah, and that that's obviously encouraging. And what we're seeing is, um, as I touched on before, I think the the COVID situation for one. You know, in the UK there was a lot of you know more COVID than ever in recent. Um, there's ever been recorded anyway in recent in recent weeks, and that is obviously affecting workforces, whether it be. You know, and that's the people that are actually already in the industry or have returned to the industry already. So, you know, that be the airport staff, security staff, or actually on, on the aircraft themselves. So we're seeing big challenges, big challenges there. And as part of that kind of comeback after COVID as well, you've got the challenge of, um, you know, a lot of airlines and airports have laid off a lot of staff to bring them back in. They need to be security cleared by government organisations and they are also being affected by um, the COVID absences themselves. So there's a whole chain, which means it's taking longer to get either new staff or rehired staff back into these jobs that are so critical for, for keeping things running. So that that's not just a UK thing. I think we're seeing that issue in other um, countries as well. So, you know, it's not a new, as you say, it's not a new thing to see these kind of, um, the, the system struggling to cope with this high demand. And as you say, this isn't demand quite at the level, um, sort of as a whole anyway, at the level we've, we've perhaps seen, um, pre-COVID, but it, but it is proving very challenging. And it, it in a weird way, it's a sign of normality that, that, um, even though COVID's part of the reasoning, it's, it's kind of a sign of normality that there are actually stories like that. And it's, and, and of course, it's also a sign of this strange new reality we're in, uh, you know, at Heathrow, were, they reported their busiest month for traffic in March. Yeah, that is predominantly um, uh, being driven by outbound tourism from the UK. Uh, from the UK, inbound, there are still a number of restrictions depending where you're flying from. You still have the, um, the testing requirement, mm. and of course, for, for for airports all around the world, they are still having to deal with this extra processing. And anyone who's attempted to travel over the past uh, year or so will be fully aware of the documentation, the requirement to test. Even as that's part starting to ease. That isn't easing everywhere, is it? No, that yeah. What what you perhaps don't appreciate being in, you know, based in the UK, where we don't now have to you know to travel back into the country, we don't have to do anything else, um, any of that kind of paperwork. But what you don't appreciate, I guess, if someone's looking at the UK, knowing they've got to travel back to a country where they need to be COVID free, for example, but there's the sky high COVID rates in the UK at the moment, so. Not that attractive. Maybe someone is thinking, should we do a week long trip there with the, with the danger that they'll catch COVID while they're here, for example, and then not be able to get home. So it really is. And this is obviously we, one of the defining themes of the last two years has been that patchwork of restrictions. And, and for as long as that some of those still exist, traveling is complicated and the, the recovery can't really kick fully into gear. I think that's because, you know, if it's only in one direction, that still creates dangers of being stuck in a country or having all sorts of logistical issues if what you don't want to happen happens basically and that that recovery is then further challenged by uh, what we're seeing in the Ukraine and you know the the terrible situation there the impact on air travel this seems like a a really minor side to it but clearly from a uh, from 
for airlines, for everyone operating in that industry, wondering, you know, to what extent that might have an impact on demand in a world which is already, you know, you're already feeling it like it's a fragile recovery because no one quite knows what comes next with COVID. Everyone's hoping for the best on that. The war in the Ukraine then creates, you know, wider repercussions and, it, and it's left an industry, especially those, uh, you know, for some airlines in particular in Europe, where their, their markets are affected. Yeah, and that, that's for many reasons. I think the further east you are in Europe, the, the bigger the challenges there. And yeah, there's a, sense of, there's a sentiment thing there around the desire to travel. But but at the same time, obviously, one impact on airlines is that it's exacerbated the rise in, in fuel costs, for example, um, which is all feeds back into that cost of living crisis. And But yeah, the the, the Ukraine situation is a difficult one. I think all CEOs you talk to you obviously caveat this with the fact that clearly what people are going through in Ukraine, how it's affecting the airline industry, and is a is obviously in that context a, a small issue. But the reality is, and I think the airspace closures are one area where it's clearly having a big impact on certain airlines. So, and it, it is difficult to see that being resolved quickly. I mean, given where we are today with you know relations between Russia and and Europe, it feels like a lot needs to happen before we're back at that. So you look at an airline like Finnair, where its entire kind of, where the bulk of its kind of long haul strategy is based around being able to overfly Russia and you know have one of the fastest routes into Europe and into Asia via via Helsinki. That that's a challenge. There are you get Air Baltic right on the border of Russia. There, certain routes don't quite work anymore. So they're much more focused on flying west. The bits and pieces there that um, are significant. I think the airspace one is going to become more significant if it carries on and the the general airline recovery continues as well, because we've covered quite a lot how the big European groups weren't really relying on Asia Pacific this summer, you know, for their recoveries essentially. They're, some of them are flying there, but you know, given that again we go back to the travel restrictions that exist in those markets, mean you're not getting anywhere, anywhere near you know the frequencies or demand you would have had pre-COVID. But, you know, if we have a good summer and we're looking, the you know, airlines are ready to expand further and, and the situation in Asia eases more in terms of restrictions, then that, you know, that creates a challenge. And then possibly more of a capacity crunch into areas where where airlines um, are able to operate economically. So, yeah, it's um, clearly a massively unhelpful development for the industry that that's happened. As you say, it's not um, for the vast majority of carriers, you know, and particularly Russian and Ukraine carriers aside, that it's not changing the narrative too much. And of course, for many Asian carriers, they were international routes. They're still only really beginning to come back for many markets. And obviously, we, yeah. you know, the the restrictions there have started to lift in in, in several of those markets. But you know, obviously, the most the prime example, China and, and Hong Kong. You you know, the lockdown is still very much, or the restrictions are still very much the same as they were peak of the of the crisis yeah exactly so again in that that way as they open this yeah this gets more significant for the asia carriers as well and just touching on that i was looking at some of the airports data for 2021 earlier and uh, it's amazing looking at hong kong situation where it's the biggest airport in the world for cargo tons handled in 2021 at the same time you look at the um, passenger side of the equation demonstrating this restrictions impact thing and you know what is it 74 million in 2019 1.4 1.4 million in 2021. So a long way to go there. But yes, the longer these, these, these airspace restrictions carry on and the other impacts of particularly on fuel make flying further to get somewhere 
even more onerous on your balance sheet, then yeah, there, there's something there that we need, we need to keep an eye on. Certainly, one bit of normality that has returned is is Atlanta, the biggest um, airport in the world by for passenger numbers, is is once again the uh, it had been had it had its crown toppled by um, uh, a Chinese airport, but the um, it's it, it's back, isn't it? It's back, yeah. So Guangzhou was number one in 2020. I think it in 2019 it was just outside the top ten. It's uh, China's southern hub. In, um, in the south of the country near, not far from Hong Kong. I think what that reflects is um, obviously Guangzhou number one in 2020 when um, China was kind of an example of a, of a market that kept open more than others during those, um, certainly once the, the first couple of months of the pandemic were out of the way, China's domestic market was often viewed as one of the strongest in the world amid obvious challenges. What's happened since then is into 2021, US domestic has really um, had a strong recovery. So that has pushed a number of US airports there kind of higher in the, the top 10. I think the uh, top seven airports in the world in 2021 were in the US in terms of passenger numbers. And that just reflects that the US already had a big domestic market, obviously going into the crisis. And it's um, it was, was able to recover much more quickly than others. At the same time, China, which is another huge domestic market, has kind of stalled a bit. Yeah, we, we all know about the zero COVID policy there, which is basically stopping international travel into the country of, of any size. But at the same time, that's also, you know, if a whole city knocks down, for example, like we've seen in Shanghai recently, then, yeah, it starts to have a big impact on domestic it's, as well. It's been, so China's been very stop-start, whereas actually in the US, which only in fact reopened properly for um, or to some degree for vaccinated international travellers in, in November but you know that's still such was the size of the market the mm. traffic to Latin America as well uh, that that regained that momentum and you know we have seen that US carriers are expected to, to be the first to return to profitability probably this year mm. and we're seeing that a little bit more now in, in the business strategies of the airlines and that Notable, perhaps, for the interest around Spirit Airlines, a low-cost carrier in the US. And um, we'll speak a bit about that in part two. Stay on top of all the latest airline news at flightglobal.com. Find out more on how to subscribe at flightglobal.com forward slash subscribe. Yes, so welcome back. The probably the biggest news uh, uh, in the industry of the past uh, couple of weeks has been the interest in Spirit Airlines. That was kicked off by a bid by uh, from Frontier Airlines, and then uh, JetBlue decided to get involved. Yeah, it's. Um, I remember the early days of the crisis. A lot of people were keen to predict consolidation as a as a consequence of, of COVID. But what we've seen um, is that we've such damaged balance sheets, having taken on a lot of debt. Airlines in most places and kind of focused on getting their own uh, affairs in order. But so you get this curious situation where in a market that's already cited as a, a really positive example of consolidation, it's kind of first out of the traps again um, after the industry's biggest ever crisis. But yeah, there's a history t- to this with Indigo Partners and, and Bill Frankie. They used to be investors in spirits um, and reports suggested when Frankie dropped that investment and took on Frontier, that um, part of the reason was that he was keen for Spirit to to purchase Frontier um, about ten years ago, was it now? Um, so there's kind of there was a neat kind of narrative there that Frankie was going back and combining those two two airlines into this big um, ultra low cost carrier in the US, and that could still happen. But we've 
you know, a bit out of the blue. And I think I'm right saying not unlike what nearly might, uh, well, they tried to do with um, uh, Virgin, Virgin America. America yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with Virgin America, um, uh, Alaska Airlines, there was a, a, a bidding war that emerged between Alaska Airlines and JetBlue mm-hmm. uh, for Virgin America, which Alaska uh, ultimately won and ultimately merged. And JetBlue now getting its, throwing its hat in the ring for Spirit. Yeah, it's a higher offer, um, about 30%, I think. What's curious about all this is um, the different intentions for spirits um, that the two suitors have. So you've got JetBlue saying this is about creating a bigger JetBlue. And when we talk about JetBlue, we're talking about an airline model that's um, is, uh, some would describe as hybrid. So can it sometimes describe as low cost, but... As we all know, it's got um, it's got a business class product, for example. It's not um, it's nothing like the kind of ultra low cost model. Probably, if you're looking at Europe, a bit bit more like EasyJet, where it's um, will fly into the bigger airports, for example. But yeah, what this is about taking an ultra low cost product in spirit and and using it to expand JetBlue, and in doing that, it would, I think, jump over Alaska to become the the fourth biggest, sorry, the fifth biggest carrier in the country. And it's about, I guess. JetBlue competing more with those, you know, the, the, the big three network carriers there. You know, and as we know with JetBlue, they've recently launched um, transatlantic flights to add a new string to their bow when it comes to network. And what's curious, I guess, is Frontier's um, intentions are quite different, aren't they? So- yeah, so yeah, Frontier is sort of more of the same. They're both playing in the same field. They're both at that um, ultra-low LCC model uh, part of the business. Uh, you know, that there's there's a clear, clear and logical fit to it. Now, Spirit have said, um, you know, obviously they've taken notice of the uh, of the extra uh, uh, premium in the uh, uh, the offer from JetBlue, so they're, they're willing to engage. It'll be really interesting to see what Spirit decides at the end of this. But also, you know, there, there could be a role that uh, regulators play in this. Uh, JetBlue has uh, uh, an alliance; it's working on the Northeast Alliance with American Airlines. And that's already come under the the gaze of the uh, of the regulators. So uh, you have that element on top of it. I, I think what's interesting about about this is is it's easy to view this, and you know we'd be as guilty as the next man to put together the uh, merger mania headline because that just is really lovely and it works fantastically well. But as you say, this is very it is quite specific to to the US, you know, this huge domestic market uh, already where you're already seeing consolidation. There are some other bits and pieces we've seen a little bit in Canada, but beyond that, not huge amounts. Yeah, you've got you've got WestJet uh, looking to buy Sunwing. Not not uh, the significance there is the the, the the recent history of the leisure market in in Canada. So you've got Air Canada's failed um, purchase of Transat, which is um, obviously part of the reason why I think they're a bit miffed that <laughs> that maybe there's a, a tire happening elsewhere. But yeah, again, there's um, very different COVID experience for the Canadian airlines. So it was um, much tighter controls on even domestic travel there. So um, I think there's more of a taking the opportunity there to to kind of shore up looking ahead rather than the, 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 the strengthening quite strong existing positions really that you're seeing with JetBlue, Spirit, Frontier, whatever. But um, And then in Europe, you're one of your favourite topics, the airline that would never go away when it goes away is Alitalia, isn't it? And the- Alitalia, who did... It, during the pandemic, they have finally ridden in, uh, out of the last chance saloon to be the Italian airline replaced by uh, the newly formed ITA Airways. And 
what's interesting, and it's always been the case in Italia as well, is that, you know, regardless of the challenges of the financial model and, and who knows how successfully restructured and re-engineered ITA will be. But regardless of the challenges Alitalia had, it was never short, short of suitors. And so it appears for um, ITA as well. I mean, Lufthansa are kind of in the box seat. They've been working together with a um, Swiss logistics firm on pulling together a um, potential bid there. Lufthansa is still saying that they're kind of, you know, would it, I think they're being careful to make clear they're not jumping wholesale into an investment into uh, uh, in pumping. So it's the very uh, certainly be at most uh, a minority shareholding initially. Germany is a huge market. Germany, Italy is a huge market for for Lufthansa. It always has been its second largest one outside of um, uh, Germany in the US, and they've always. Been active there. They've um, got Air Dolomiti in the north of the country. They had their own venture out there, uh, Lufthansa Italia, which they, they based out of Milan. So it's no surprise that they should be interested in seeing opportunity there. Mm. But uh, but Air France also, st- who who have themselves previously been involved, um, they're showing some interest too. Yeah, and that's um, I think I mentioned earlier. We you know there are coming out of the pandemic. There are reasons why consolidation is quite difficult. And I think in the case of Air France, because of the um, state aid they receive, I think part of the conditions there make it difficult for them to to commit to um, uh, an investment in another carrier. But I think their last results briefing, Ben Smith was very open about the idea that you know if if the conditions were right, they would be interested. Again, it's a a big market for Air France um, KLM as well. Um, Italy. So we've, we've been here before that, haven't we? And I think uh, what's interesting is, you know, the spirit frontier thing isn't new. Mm. JetBlue spirit is. The, the Italian national carrier being of interest to other European airlines isn't new. And I think um, oh, we've got the one, one thing is, I guess, that we've still got IAGA Europa mm. going on. So um, that, that seems there's some agreement there where IG has, has got some exclusivity on that deal now, um, if that's approved. If they're um, loaned to Air Europe is approved, um, so that's happening. But yeah, what what's um, what we ha- haven't seen much of is something you know new out of the blue. We saw hints of it EasyJet um, yeah. with Wiz, uh, but um, I was listening to SAS mm. Chief Executive Anko Van der Werf talking last week, and and he was saying it was kind of the pandemic may have been a missed opportunity consolidation wise in Europe. Yeah, when. European Commission made its decision to approve, you know, individual pots of state aid for some of the the kind of nas- smaller national carriers, and he he wasn't excluding his own from that. Um, there was a decision there to to allow them to be kept going, and and in doing that, as we've just touched on, it's created possibly blocked consolidation for some time. Whereas a consideration could have been, look, this is the chance. You know, these airlines aren't a lot of them aren't profitable. They are being propped up by governments. This is the chance now. To say let's almost have a blank sheet and you know some of these you know secondary operators you look at the level of SAS um, TAP might be another one in Portugal um, where where the business case might not be as as clear um, yeah you you kind of take that opportunity to 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 consolidate but um, but and, and of course the the other thing that hasn't changed. In, especially in cross-border consolidation, all the things that prevented consolidation mm. before, you know, which were, you know, largely around the, the the challenge of retaining traffic rights, you know, all these all these things that have made it difficult for cross-border consolidation to happen in the past, which has involved, you know, in many cases, 
airlines are creating, either taking minority stakes or turning to partnerships or, you know, finding different kind of structures for it. None of that's changed. So, no. you know, I think I think people will look at, I think we, we may be entering a period of strategic partnerships. I can definitely see more strategic partnerships. I can, I can see some bolder things happening. But, you know, you're not going to see brands largely disappear. You're not going to see huge consolidations. I think the industry, you know, there are hundreds of airlines going into the pandemic. Some have fallen over. Some new ones have emerged. We're still going to be talking about, you know, a highly fragmented industry, I think, at the end of this. And two examples just spring to mind straight away. You've got Norwegian making a comeback and seems to be doing quite well. And in the UK, you've got Flybe, which obviously collapsed right on the, the eve of the pandemic. But yeah, two brands there that have, as it stands, are going to, in 2022, going to be existing and flying in a, in a European market that um, has been through a lot. And you sort of feel like, yeah, if the pandemic didn't do it, then, um, <laughs> no, then nothing will work. Yeah. It's meant to be a liberalised market, clearly, and it is easier, as we can see with the low-cost carriers, you know, bases everywhere. Um, you know, the, the, the national borders don't matter as much there, but in the same way that their history isn't as flag carriers and as strategic assets for the for the states. So there's um, different considerations. But yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... it's well, it's, it's sort of reassuring that 18 months away and we're still talking about Flybe. So, yes, um, yeah. you know, it should, so something's never changed. Um Thank you, Lewis. We'll leave it there for this week. Cheers, Graham. We aim to be back in a shorter period than, um, <laughs> than, than 18 months um, with the next Airline Business Podcast. You can find links to the stories we've referenced in the podcast notes, and you can keep up to date with all the latest on how airlines are faring in their recovery efforts at flightglobal.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you again next time.